Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, Roger. Hey, Stuart. Great to connect as always. I feel like this should be an episode of the 70s show. No, I'm not talking the hit sitcom. I'm talking like a rewind to the 1970s and how governments reacted to high inflation and an angry roiling public that were getting increasingly pissed off with what they felt like was the stagnation, the immiseration of their lives. Well, this week, guys, we saw the beginnings of the Liberal Party policy response to this angst. It's taken a number of months, longer than many thought, for the government to kind of start to come out with some policy planks on the, quote, affordability crisis that seems, at least in their view, to be across the economy, housing, groceries, food, you name it. We can go on and on. Sean, let's come to you, though. What do you discern here? What is kind of linking these different policy prescriptions together? And is there a coherent economic theory that you think could lead to the desired political result, which is some kind of reversal, some hope that these really tough polling numbers could start to turn around? Uh, I think the short answer is yes. Um, when the Trudeau government sees outcomes in the economy or society that it doesn't like it its instinct is to deem them market failures which of course then necessitates a role for government um probably the the biggest example of this since it took office in 2015 is the childcare issue where um there is i think pretty clearly a, a lack of affordable uh, childcare spaces, particularly in the country's major cities. You know, one way to think about that is um, different levels of government have imposed various rules and regulations on the market, some of them quite justified, you know, uh, the number of adults to child ratio or um, requirements for safety training or any number of rules that, that the governments think uh, ought to um, uh, be be required on, on the part of childcare operators, but the result of those rules is that it makes it hard for the market to do what markets to do, which is to bring supply and demand into equilibrium. Um, the government doesn't think about it that way, though. It says there's not enough spaces. Ergo, there's a need for the government to come in and impose more rules. Now, uh, deciding how much childcare workers should earn, for instance, amongst other things, and I think. Uh, we're seeing that play out in the past couple of days. Uh, rather than start from the premise that the problem in housing is that uh, various land use regulations, development fees, et cetera, et cetera, are standing in the way of, of the market to increase supply and bring it into something approaching um, 
uh, equilibrium with demand. The government is saying, no, what we need is a housing funding accelerator or new uh, savings accounts for uh, first time home buyers and on and on and on. And of course, just yesterday, we saw this play out again. The government has decided that it knows precisely what the cost of butter or milk or eggs or any other number frosted flakes you you, you pick uh, ought to be. And it's essentially saying to CEOs that, that you get the sense the prime minister thinks personally goes over the individual prices of things and sets them his or herself. That if they don't have a plan by Thanksgiving, the government is going to step in because it precisely knows the, the, what these goods ought to cost across the country. It's a very long way of saying uh, your reference to the 1970s um, isn't just isn't merely facetious. There's something to it. This this reflects something of a throwback uh, to an old style of economic thinking that we haven't seen really um, since uh, the, the early 1970s. And we know how that story went. Yeah, it's um, we talk a bit more. I think that this idea of a, a punitive tax on the profits of grocers who, guys, this is a low margin business. Okay, uh, it always has been. It always will be. Yeah, there's been food inflation. Guess where the food inflation is coming from? It's coming from the friggin' food producers. They've got higher input costs. Where do you think those input costs are coming from? They're coming from hydrocarbons. Do you know what hydrocarbons do? They not only power tractors and allow people to plow fields and plant corn and wheat, they also create fertilizers. They also subsidize the transportation of food, the manufacturing of food. So I digress a bit here, but you know, there's a connection between Canada's, you know, dead on arrival energy pol national energy strategy right now and food inflation. If we had cheap energy, we would have cheap food. Those two are connected together. Anyway, I digress, but Stuart, let me come to you because what's interesting is we've seen Minister Champagne really come out on the fore on a lot of this stuff in the last couple of days. And this both surprised me and disappointed me because I thought I thought he was the la one of the last people in cabinet that had a serious government back a business background, Freudian slip there. Uh, and that he was a kind of voice for some sanity that we should not be going back to the 1970s and price controls because guess what? Those really didn't work. And it was a kind of pretty darn disastrous economic experiment. And then here's Champagne, another minister, seemingly to me, just kind of eviscerating his business credentials in I don't know, in service, in pursuit of, again, a strange kind of theory of the case that, as Sean has laid out, that the prime minister wants to pursue, which is that the government can step in and manage whether it's Google's relationship with the Globe and Mail, Meta's relationship with the Ottawa citizen, whether it's Loblaw's relationship with you know, the part, you know, the Bureau of Competition on and on and on and on. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the best way to look at this is as something of a populist Hail Mary. And I, I think it's a direct result of the poll numbers we've been seeing. I don't think that anyone is sitting around in the liberal caucus retreat saying this is a really great policy. It's not a, it's a great public policy we're doing here. I think they're saying we're getting killed. And I, I think 
maybe something to look at here is what they didn't do. And I think it is quite notable that they didn't come out and start talking about social issues or cultural issues. Um, you know, I've spoken to a few conservative strategists who will say, you know, the the liberals know if this election, the next election is fought on pocketbook issues, they're going to have a lot of trouble. And they know that if they can flip it to something else, they may actually pull it out. And that's what happened in 21, where, you know, it became a COVID election rather than an economic election. And um, I, I think this shows, though, that even the liberals know that they're getting hammered on these issues and they have to do something. And I think what this further shows is they are actually out of ideas. The housing policy they announced um, was really weak. They were saying thousands of houses. We have a million people coming in every year and they're saying we're going to get a few thousand more houses, guys. Don't worry, we'll take care of it. Um, so I think this shows real trouble. There, It is fun to yell at CEOs, but that will only get you so far. And I think most Canadians will see through this. Let me go on a bit of a rant here, though. Um, it won't quite match Rudyard's uh, regular rants. Um, Mine are but... patented, okay? Yeah. It's called Rudyard's Rant. <laughs> but reason. I do want to get... And it's a I... patented feature of this show, Sean, so I do not <laughs> want you walking over my franchise. It's my franchise. Yeah, what do we call it? Sean's soliloquies. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, but I do want to get one thing off my chest. There is a tendency in the minds of big L liberals and a lot of opinion leaders and commentators with adjacency to the party and the government to fancy themselves the evidence-based crowd and that the and that conservatives are um are drawn by political calculus or um you know ignorance or uh old uh instincts or tradition or whatever and you know it seems to me as you say, Stuart, we're seeing kind of mounting evidence um, that the government's choices on a range of issues uh, are being driven by uh, short-term political calculus or special interest politics, um, or you know, basically at this stage, coming out of this caucus retreat, the government's own survival. Um, and so this this ought to this latest example of putting on the table price and wage controls, an idea that one thought uh, we, we wouldn't have to go through the experience again to learn that lesson, to put that back on the table, I think ought to lay bare um, that the, the old um, evidence-based claim that uh, people in and around the government often make. To me, there's something also fascinating going on here is that for the you know, and this isn't just the liberals, it's multiple governments for a generation have been all too happy with the absence of competition in the Canadian economy. They have chosen, in effect, to have fewer airlines, not more, fewer banks, not more, fewer telcos, not more. You could say there's a reason possibly, I mean, it's partly geography, but we have fewer grocery chains, certainly than the you know any regional market in the United States of similar size to, to Canada. Now, again, that could partly be the challenges of logistics and geography, but you can go through a whole bunch of industries in Canada and the policy preference out of Ottawa, you know, the, the, uh, the approach of government has been to say, you know what? Uh, we think managed competition is better than real competition. 
And I think governments have done this along the way for part of the reasons you said, Sean, is that it has allowed them to express through tolerating managed competition, different policy preferences. So guess what, Air Canada, you've got to fly into Gander so many times a week or tell us, you know, you've really got to be building out, you know, rural uh, high speed internet in these six postal codes or banks, you've got to do lending to these and these communities because we've made this a policy preference and we're going to give you your duopoly oligopoly on the basis that you execute on our policy preferences. So this, this lack of competition, this preference towards market concentration up until this point has been, in Ottawa's view, I think, uh, a strategy, a style of government and governance. And now, isn't it just ironic? What's that song? Hey, well, let's play that coming out of uh, break. Um, isn't it just ironic that we have a situation where wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of competition? Wouldn't that help with inflation if we had more airlines, more telecommunications companies, more banks, more grocery chains? But no, not good. Not good to have competition, Sean. We're going to have to continue to have the absence of competition. And then I don't know what this weird 21st century version of price controls where we're going to tax grocers like we've taxing banks. Remember, we've already done this with this government, with the banks. They have these profits, uh, you know, extraordinary profit tax on the Canadian banks. And then what? Redistribute that money through grocery rebates or checks, you know, from the government of Canada. I mean, this is something out of like Belarus or, <laughs> you know it's just not worthy of the country. And I don't know, I just find Sean, we're just, it's such a delicious moment. All these things coming home to roost. No, that's it. There's a ton of insight there, Rudy. I think that's precisely right. Um, that for a long time, successive governments have preference the status quo, because as you say, it, it creates an expectation on the part of, of protected sectors and protected companies that they are not, market actors, that they're sort of partners with the government. Um, and and that partnership comes with some expectations that they do things that may not be motivated by, you know, typical profit considerations and that sort of thing. And we're starting to see that unravel a little bit, aren't we? You know, you see Bell, for instance, saying like, wait a second, you've pushed us too far on, on um, maintaining television programs that aren't successful because we're now facing real competitive pressures from the Netflix of the world or your expectations around unprofitable world buildouts um, in exchange for our um, monopoly license or, you know, whatever. All, all this to say, I, I actually think what you're, you're seeing is increasingly companies saying you've pushed us too far, that this kind of stakeholder capitalism model isn't working for us. And, um, and the government doesn't quite know what to do, especially since this particular government, its economic theory of the case, as you put it, is so steeped in this idea that um, that there's a role for governments to reach into companies and not just make judgments on prices, but make judgments on who should sit on their boards and the composition of their workforce. But Sean, and on and you know, on and the on. corporations, and I'll come to Stuart on this, they've made this Faustian bargain, okay? They have 
yield farmed off all of us on our cell phone bills, on our bank accounts, across the economy. They've said, okay, government, you give us this managed competition. You make sure these bad, big, bad Americans or Europeans can't come in here and threaten our profit margins. And we'll do your bidding. Stuart, I'll come to you. I mean, what interests me is I don't hear from the conservatives a kind of what I would have expected, like a nice, coherent, traditional, ideological defense of the value of competition and breaking down these duopolies, oligopolies, this kind of preferential model of governance that Ottawa and, the, and big corporations in Canada have gotten into. Pierre Polyev had one line of attack at that speech last week, and it was on big pharma. Everyone else skated, telco skated, bank skated, ag, you know, which supply management, it all skated. What do you think's going on there, Stuart? Because if you want to make a case to me as a voter that you're serious about reducing prices and and fighting inflation, I want to hear about competition. I don't want to hear about 1970s style price controls. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right about the relationship between business and the government. And I would just say, as an aside, when we're talking about bailouts for media companies, this kind of stuff does play into it. It's something to look at as a consequence of this. Um, on the on the point of the conservatives, I, I mean, how long have we been talking about supply management? Which presumably would be the easiest thing to say to Canadians, we're going to do this thing that will make milk cheaper. Seems like an easy win, but then the the interests are so hard to overcome. And I don't have a lot of hope that that will ever change. Um, I am working on a piece now about the sort of changing relationship of business and conservative politics, which is that, um, you know, it, it's a constant conservative attack that businesses are getting more woke. And there are some political scientists who have actually looked at that as what businesses self-identify as. And they will say, yes, we've become more progressive. We are more concerned about environmentalism. We are more concerned about diversity, sometimes over, say, corporate tax rates, which is surprising, actually. And that's why you see in the States, someone like Ron DeSantis, way happier to attack businesses. And that has become sort of a populist thing for American conservatives. You see a little bit of that with Polyev, who has been going after these pharma companies in a way that's a little bit different than what we've seen from conservative leaders. And I am skeptical that will extend to these bigger companies, the ones that you know the progressives feel pretty okay attacking, but it's certainly a bigger possibility now than it ever was. May I just make uh, one final point here, guys, is um, if you're looking for some parallels to um, the position the Trudeau government finds it, itself in and where we may be headed policy-wise, I think you can look to the last 12 months or so of the Wynn government in the province of Ontario. Listeners may recall, before that, um, the Wynn government, with its finance minister, Dwight Duncan, was moving reasonably in the direction of deficit reduction. Of course, there were critics, including me, who thought they should have moved faster. But it was a government that was reasonably sen sensible about fiscal policy. And, you know, I think sat firmly in the mainstream of, of Canadian politics. That last year, especially as uh, the wheels started to fall off, I mean, they threw everything at the wall, um, and both from a fiscal point of view, but also its, its policies became kind of increasingly unserious. You know, they oftentimes amounted to a press release with not a lot behind it otherwise. Um, if this 
past couple of days is any indication we're as many as two years out from the next election campaign. So, um, you know, my advice to, to listeners is hold on to your wallets um, because this could be a pretty chaotic and expensive uh, 24 months. Yeah. My final contribution is just keep an eye on this grocery thing because I mean, again, I just, I love the idea. That it's all going to be solved by Thanksgiving. It's kind of like, what are they going to do? Run ads of the prime minister bringing like a giant Turkey dinner into a, you know, a poor Scottish household, like the Stuart Thompson family outside of Ottawa. Here's your, here's your Turkey that I purloined from the, uh, the evil Galen Weston. And, and I would take that media bailout actually, if that's on the offer. (laughs) I squirreled it out of Loblaws and and now I'm furnishing it to you. And and yes, if you'd like to vote for me in the next election, um, I, you know, I'd I'd appreciate that. And here, ch- here, 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 Mr. And Mrs. Thompson, is your. It takes a chicken in every pot uh, to a yeah. new level, doesn't it? Oh my God, this stuff is just unbelievable. Okay, look, we're going to come back from the break. We're going to continue a little bit on this theme. There's a big progressive gab fab happening in Montreal this weekend. I had no idea it was happening. I don't expect you, listener, would either, but Starmer's there, the head of the UK. Um, Labor Party. Uh, we've got the former prime minister of New Zealand. We've got big name progressives all around the world flying into Montreal. Canadian think tanks behind it. The prime minister is going to be there presiding over it all. Is this the last supper of the progressive left? Uh, or is there some plot unfolding here for their continued relevance on the world stage? We're going to get into that right after this break. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-in-Large. Okay, guys, uh, Canada 2020, that longstanding um, kind of liberal, friendly, progressive think tank out of Ottawa, um, really super connected with this government over the years, um, probably one of Canada's kind of sleeper successes in the think tank community. Let's give kudos where kudos is due. It's great to see people coming up with a theory of the case and influencing government policy on a wide 
scale. Canada 2020 certainly did that. They've got a conference of big name progressives uh, kicking off this weekend in Montreal. The focus, Sean, is going to be, what is it? Democracy and human rights. And I guess I want to come to you on this and just kind of reflect as to where progressivism is going in the West. I, I get them wanting to scratch that itch. It's a big one of theirs, but boy, you'd think that what progressives really should be concerned about is the efficient and effective delivery of government because they think government is pretty darn important. And my sense, Sean, out there, the big threat to progressivism, and I think even here in Canada, is this sense that government isn't working anymore, that people aren't getting the services, that they're not being delivered efficiently and effectively. You know, progressivism needs to get back to the boring stuff if it's going to be a survivable, viable political ideology in the coming decade. Yeah, well said. Um, You've just given a a great elevator summary of my uh, article for The Hub on on Monday, which aims to get at some of these issues, in particular, um, to understand the resonance of Pierre Polyev's claim that the so-called promise of Canada is um has been diminished in recent years and i i think you've put the nail on the head that a lot of it um reflects this kind of growing sense that our institutions particularly the government um is failing us and man the list is long um everything from a flatline gdp per capita to um uh healthcare a healthcare crisis to i think uh, real problems with our immigration system, including uh, we just learned in the past couple of weeks that the government of Canada has been miscounting the number of people in the country by at least a million a year. You know, if you want to make the argument, to your point, if you want to make the argument as a progressive to Canadians or Americans or whomever, that the government ought to have a more active role in managing the economy um, or uh, in involving itself in the day-to-day lives of of citizens, you got to be able to deliver passports, <laughs> you know. That seems to me to be uh, a kind of first order test. And you know, it's often forgotten, guys, that um, the biggest challenge to Obamacare was not the policy. I, I don't think. I think in a lot of ways, people were predisposed to the idea that the government was trying to fill a gap in the insurance market. It's that the damn website wouldn't work, right? Um, and it sort of brought into question the whole enterprise. And I, I do think that's. Um, one of the biggest challenges facing progressives it's a it's a state capacity problem fundamentally and i think the the pandemic has exposed all of us to the fragility of state capacity in our societies let me just wake one quick point though before i turn it over to you guys the other thing i think that this relates more directly to the tro government is i think in a lot of ways the past several years have also demonstrated that the trudeau government's way of thinking about the economy is is failed. You know, they promised us inclusive growth and they they thought by focusing on inclusion the growth would follow. And I think what we've increasingly discovered is that we've not they failed to deliver on on both fronts. And so um I, I think in that sense there's a kind of need for some intellectual renewal. And then as you say, Rudyard, uh the need to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of governing because I, I think if they don't solve for the state capacity problem, it will remain a impediment. Uh, for the kind of full flourishing of the progressive vision. 
It's interesting, Stuart, to see that, you know, Starmer is going to be there because um, if you were to think of what could be the next um, leg to, you know, the Western kind of progressive political movement, it could well be what we'll see in the United Kingdom. I mean, I think there is every indication to suggest that this 12 plus year, 13 year conservative government in the UK is struggling, um, that uh, from healthcare to uh to immigration, to a whole bunch of issues, the United Kingdom is also in a pretty big funk. In fact, the parallels between Canada and the UK are really fascinating, the parallels and the differences. Um, so I don't know what your view is, Stuart, on that. If you think that, you know, Starmer kind of takes the mantle from Trudeau and the flag of progressivism is carried back across the Atlantic uh, to Westminster and the UK in the next election. And we'll see a lot of big, big challenges uh, like Canada that the UK needs to dig itself out from. Yeah, actually, I was thinking back to 2015 and even earlier where Barack Obama saw Justin Trudeau as sort of his successor in Western progressivism. And um, there was a lot of hope around that. And now, you know, you look at what's happening in the U.S. where Joe Biden, if he gets a second term, will be 86 by the end of it. And that should make Democrats think about maybe we should have somebody else in that spot, but they don't have anyone. There's no one to take that role. The vice president is not going to be able to do it. And the liberals in Canada have the same problem where as Justin Trudeau's numbers tick down, as they seem to do every single month, um, you start to think about maybe some kind of caucus issues for him. But the big thing going in Trudeau's favor is that there's no one ready to take that mantle. And a lot of that has to do with recent trends in polling we're seeing where younger people are leaning to the right. And, you know, I came of age in, you know, I was at university when the Iraq war happened. It was cool to be progressive and to be oppositional. And now I think there's kind of a counterculture thing around um, being right of center. And I think Maybe millennials, my generation, have made progressivism much less cool. Um, and I think that is maybe a bigger cultural problem than we've realized where, you know, that's where you bring your new leaders in. And I think the liberals are seeing that problem now. Um, and, and it could be maybe a bigger problem across the broader sweep of the Western world than we realize. Yeah, well, I'll be very interested, Sean, to see if there's a certain guest on the twenty Canada 2020 guest list this weekend, and that's Mark Carney. Will Mark Carney be... Uh, you know, uh, in the halls of progressive power come the weekend. I hear a lot of rumors, again, just rumors that, uh, you know, there's a sense amongst his supporters that the stars have really finally al aligned for him. Um, a feeling that, you know, he has been a tire kicker. And we all know there's people out there that like to be thought of as Canada's next great prime minister, but never actually do it. But I think, Sean, there's a an argument here for Carney right now, and it's not simply political. It's not that this prime minister may simply be unable to recover from his own net negatives now. It's that the agenda, the issue set is really lining up for Carney on the economy, on productivity, on inflation. Boy, if you were sitting there thinking, who could carry the progressive banner and remember that he has this, some would say, kind of fanaticism on the environment. So he might have some resonance with at least the progressive wing of the party to the extent that it 
it is environmental, uh, environmental, environmentalist heavy. I don't know. Let's keep an eye out. We hopefully there'll be somebody in Montreal that can do some <laughs> carny spotting for the hub. We'll we'll do live text message updates over the weekend. May I, may I just jump in on that because I I think there's a there's some insight there, um, and it reflects I think the state of the progressive mind, um, which is to say, I'm not sure these days that progressives are motivated by economic issues. I think they're principally motivated by issues of the environment, as you say, and of culture. And in, and so in that sense, you know, there may be some people thinking, well, how could Mark Carney possibly fit within uh, the modern liberal party or the broader progressive world? Isn't he a capitalist? He worked at Goldman Sachs and all the rest. The truth is, um, I, I think you could be, you could fit comfortably in the world of progressivism and still be, you know, pro-business and still, you know, be prepared to support lower tax rates, particularly on um, high-income earners, et cetera, as long as your cred on the environment and identity is rock solid. And I, I think that um, I think that works well for Carney. And so, I, you know, I, I've been somewhat skeptical that he's going to ride to the rescue, but I, I think increasingly, given the economic circumstances, given um, the challenges facing prime minister. And I think giving the grown recognition on the part of liberals that this election will be won and lost on questions of economics and affordability and so on means that he's probably the best bet to go kind of mano a mano against uh, Pierre Polyev. And, and just last thing I'll say is don't, uh, don't under also underestimate the kind of power of effective polarization. We've talked a bit on this podcast that any misgivings that progressives might have about Carney, given his background and so on, I think those would be greatly diminished when you have the stark choice of Mark Carney or Pierre Polyev, who's a bit of a boogeyman um, on the the left. So um, yeah, maybe this weekend is the beginning of a coronation uh, for our former central banker. What do you think, Stuart? I mean, if we're trying to think of progressive successors, you've I think accurately drawn a kind of line there, Obama to Trudeau, Biden, it really does look like a dead end in more ways than one Starmer in the UK, possibly. Um, but what about Carney? What about Mark Carney emerging as a kind of, um, yeah, slightly more technocratic version of progressivism, but I'm just amazed around the world to think of all the former central bankers who have now summited politics. So think of Mario Draghi, who ran the European Central Bank, becomes uh, the Prime Minister of Italy. Think of Janet Yellen, who ran the Federal Reserve, becomes arguably Joe Biden's most powerful cabinet minister as the head of Treasury. Christiane Lagarde, running the ECB now, rumored to be a future president of France, a possible successor to Macron and somebody who would push aside the threat of a, of a Le Pen government. I just, I have this sense that Carney, there's something interesting about Carney. There's a lot of like forces around him, right? That, that there's precedent. And I think if progressives were looking for a, a slightly more hard nosed, um, effective agent for the delivery of a progressive agenda, you could do worse than Mark Carney. Yeah, I, 
it, it makes so much sense. I am a little skeptical, actually, if Carney is the operator that, you know, he's kind of reputed to be, that he would come into a situation that it's at least 50-50, maybe it's more likely that he could just be the next Paul Martin, where you come in, you kind of stop the bleeding, but structurally you're at a big disadvantage and you're just kind of playing out that time and you've got a really rambunctious, optimistic opposition just just ready to take you out. Um, and the other one is that I'm not entirely sold that Canadians love bankers. Um, I think that is maybe the big problem for Carney is that, you know, and, and it's a problem for the Liberals too, because if you talk to Liberal caucus members, a lot of them love the idea of Carney. And I think they have to answer for the fact that they have three senior cabinet members who are women who have leadership aspirations, or at least have people who would like them to be leader. And all these liberal heads are turning to, you know, the 58 year old white guy banker rather than the women. I think that's something that they don't usually address that, but it is sort of dissonant with what they say are their values. Yeah. No, Canada's really has been a laggard on the idea of a female prime minister duly elected at the polls. And I do think that that, you know, that is something that sometime will be a huge win behind the back of an effective, uh, you know, female candidate for the leadership of, of one of the major parties. Well, guys, just terrific to kick this around with you as we do each and every day, uh, each and every Friday on the round table. Um, have a terrific weekend and uh, we will reconvene next Friday to see what other kind of insanity has happened. We've gone from housing to the price of chicken at my local supermarket. Who knows where the tentacles of government will reach next? Um, as Sean said, or maybe Stuart, hold on to your pocketbooks. We'll talk <laughs> to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.